The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Barron's Live. This is the Financial News Edition. My name is Trista Kelly. I'm the Deputy Editor of Financial News, and I'm pleased today to welcome Umar Farouk, CEO of the Onyx unit of JP Morgan. Umar, thanks you so much for being here today. Krista, thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to intro with Onyx. It's a relatively new unit at JP Morgan. So February 2019, JP Morgan Chase said it would roll out a digital currency called JPM Coin. And in October 2020, the firm created a new unit for blockchain product projects. And in August, it just started giving its wealth management clients access to crypto funds. So a really new unit. Yeah. Umar, can you tell us a little bit about that unit, what it does? So, Trista, our journey in the sort of blockchain space, which is the underlying technology for crypto, started many years ago, actually, almost immediately after Ethereum uh, came around, almost now seven, eight years ago, it seems like a lifetime. Um, and we started at that point looking at this technology, seeing how it would disrupt us. A lot of the early thought process was, oh, it can make things efficient, et cetera. But I think a core group of us always believed that this technology has the capability of fundamentally disrupting and rewiring how banking is done. So we started working then, did literally tons and tons of different little things, possibly like I think 75 or 80 different projects along the way. And then we started discovering niches where we thought we wanted to you know, grow bigger and commercialize and scale. So money some of the securities related stuff, and then also information. And I think Onyx was created to frankly scale and commercialize these technologies and build these platforms. And the reason we created it actually a little bit as a separate business unit is one, because the explicit like, you know, sort of remit for Onyx is to disrupt our businesses. And it's always a little bit harder to disrupt the business when you're sitting inside it. So having a bit of a ring fenced entity helps. And I think secondly, it's a very different thought process because blockchain distributed ledgers, they have a bit of a decentralized feel to them. So it can't be just one bank doing stuff all by themselves. So we operate increasingly in a world of peers and competitors and frenemies. So to be able to build those networks, you needed a bit of a different thought process, a different brand, and frankly, a different set of people. And we built a fantastic team to do that. Wow. So, so your, your bosses are your own frenemies. That's basically what you're saying. <laughs> they, do, they do fund us. So, I mean, uh, you know, only to a limited extent. Well, I have to ask you right out of, the, out of the gate, speaking of bosses, uh, your boss, JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, is infamously, infamously bearish on the value of Bitcoin. He's called it worthless. And yet your team is on a hiring spree. There's been reports left and right. Uh, JP Morgan was so early in the rollout of crypto related offerings to Wall Street clients. So what's the bank's stance on crypto? The CEO, mm, a little bit on the fence. And you uh, less so. So I think I'd separate a few things. One is the value of Bitcoin. So, I mean, reasonable people could disagree what the value of Bitcoin could be. Frankly, it could be zero or it could be a very high number. I think you would probably, if you went and looked at JP Morgan research, some of our colleagues in research printed, you know, research reports saying, let's say Bitcoin were to replace all of the gold used for investment in the world. 
that could push up Bitcoin's price somewhere in the middle of 100,000 to 200,000 range, somewhere in there. But, you know, on the other hand, you would have some people who would say there is nothing underlying. There's nowhere to value this thing. So it's all like, you know, over time, it'll just collapse and go to zero. So I think there's a value, there's a value disagreement that could be very reasonable. And frankly, as you know, Jamie's on one side of that uh, spectrum. That doesn't mean that we fundamentally either discount the underlying tech, which has, by the way, Jamie has made that point, I think, endlessly, but always, you know, sort of come second a little bit when people talk about it. But he has been a big believer that things like blockchain technology can be big disruptors. And JP Morgan, given our stature as, you know, one of the leading banks in the world, we can't afford not to be at the forefront of that revolution. So, so you know, even our business unit, which has grown from literally, you know, when I sort of stepped in a couple of people many years ago to now more than 100 times that many people, you know, it's because of that belief. And so I think both that comes into play. And also there's, you know, there are people who are doing this business. So, you know, there's the likes of Coinbase and Gemini that we bank. And again, they are they are complying with U.S. rules and regulations. They are doing KYC. They're doing all the right things. So there's no reason for us not to be in the market. But that doesn't mean that everyone in the bank has to believe in exactly the same thing. And I think that's the beauty of having someone like Jamie as a leader. I mean, you know, you can have real disagreements inside the house. Hmm. Well, that's good that he's a uh, he's happy to pay all your salaries despite yeah. his beliefs. Sorry, sorry that he, you know we are also very happy that he can pay our salaries. <laughs> <laughs> but what? But why was Onyx created? So what? I mean, I, you talked a little bit at, about this at the beginning, but what problem was it seen to solve? And 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 what's been the? I guess this is probably the biggest question that a lot of people have asked me. What has been the response among institutional clients of J.P. Morgan offering so far in this space? I think partly it's actually because of the clients that Onyx was formed, because the demands from our clients, their sort of willingness to co-create with JP Morgan, um, not just saying, OK, give me a product. I just want to use it. I mean, I think our clients, which are some of the largest institutions, if not almost all the largest institutions in the world, corporate or financial, they all came to us and they realized that as we are at the cutting edge and we sort of understand their businesses intimately. They wanted to partner with us to solve their problems and think about new solutions. So somehow, some in some ways, that was the impetus for creating Onyx, which is you need to then invest enough that you can commercialize and do it at scale versus continue to do experiments. So we had, for instance, you know, if you think about JPM coin, that was really a concept of can we do deposits on a blockchain versus just doing deposits like they're done, you know, regularly. Someone could argue, why would you do that? But the way we think about it is you have a 24-7 capability. You are now running something that's live, live across the world, all jurisdictions. You can put programmability into it. You can do smart contracts. You could even create things like smart money, which is a still nascent concept. But we can, for instance, make the money smart as in it can go to Trista, but it can't go to Umar because Umar has not got certain attributes. So there's many things you can do here, which we've scaled. And so... To scale, JPM coin from what was, you know, a almost, you know, just a POC a couple of years ago to last year, the total amount of, you know, different transactions was running into at times billion a day or billion plus a day. Again, on our scale, a billion a day is not a lot because, you know, we move about nine trillion a day uh, in dollars, just just in dollars. So it's not huge, but on the blockchain scale, it's quite high. So I think part of the reason for creating a business unit is to really show the belief, the investment, and then actually scale these things, not as something that augments our current existing 
process and products, but really revamps the whole thing. And and when I when I said institutional clients, and you said that that, that demand has kind of driven the the birth of Onyx, what kind of institutional clients are we talking about? Is it is it hedge funds? Is it uh, buy, mostly the buy side asset managers? So I think it's a, it's a combination. So it's not as much hedge funds because I think you know they have a bit of a unique way of doing things. They have a very specific business. It's much more of what I would call large asset managers, our financial institution clients. Um, you know, large banks that we partner with. I mean, uh, little known fact, we actually bank most of the banks in the world, bank with JB Morgan for dollars. Um, and then there's clients which are very large e-commerce companies. So these are the sort of companies that are driving innovation or very large technology companies. I think it was those sorts of clients that drove this. People who actually also have huge in-house uh, appetite for innovation. So they are the ones who came to us. It's less the sort of what I would call investment type companies, but much more on the other side. That's really interesting. That's that's very counterintuitive to, to what I thought would have thought. No, but I think it, it, the, the, what I want to separate is blockchain from crypto. Obviously, when you think about crypto investment, that may still be coming from lots of these investment companies, but that's not innovation. That's just investment. So they can come to us and say, I want to do X, Y, Z. And at this point, most of the large banks actually are not providing those services primarily because of lack of regulatory clarity, et cetera. Or they can go to, you know, very established exchanges or players like that. But I think that's much more of a crypto thought process. It's not an innovation thought process. So I think I almost would separate, you know, which are the people who are like, it's financial motivation versus like philosophical belief almost. So, you know, sort of the, the funds type people, they have obviously a financial motivation. They're trying to drive results. I think in many of the other sectors, there's also a philosophical belief that this can rewrite the very core DNA of how money moves and how information moves, and they want to work on those sorts of problems. Hmm. I think I know what you're talking about with those philosophical beliefs. There's some uh, fanatics in this area, in this space. I don't know if you run into a lot, but uh, yeah, that's not, no, something. I, I, I want to be careful what I say because you know, then you know, there there are some friends of mine who are who feel very strongly about this, and I'd much rather not get you know messages from them right after this. So. Yes, there are some there are some evangelicals, so to speak, yes. uh, in this area. But I guess, I mean, I think I talked to you before, and you were talking about what surprised you most about this area was just the speed of development. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And then, I guess the you know the the title of this this uh, conversation is is crypto here to stay? I, I would love for you to answer that question as well. So I think I'll take those two in um, in, in order. Maybe I think the okay. speed is dizzy literally dizzying, I mean, in terms of innovation. So both in terms of new stuff coming in, but even old stuff going out. So, I mean, literally, I mean, Bitcoin has not been around a little more than a decade now. And in that time frame, you know, obviously the first few years was literally just, you know, kind of rolling along slowly. Then things started to catch up. Ethereum came along. People realized, okay, I can build some more. It's not a one-trick pony. It's not just, you know, Umar giving a Bitcoin to Trista and vice versa, but maybe we can program this thing. Maybe we can create ecosystems. And I think to go from there to what was, I mean, uh, I'll not get too jargony, but like the initial coin offering phase where people started offering all these like, you know, almost like equity-like structures, then obviously the SEC put an end to that, that went away. Then there was, you know, there's been decentralized organizations, there's been DeFi. It's a Cambrian explosion of how many new things are happening. You know, NFTs, which I'm sure everyone has read about, a non-fungible token, you know, art and other related things. 
But but I think if you just take some examples, so I mean, if you think about decentralized finance and, and the concept of decentralized finance is that, you know, if you think about finance today, pretty much all finance goes through an intermediary or some central body. So, you know, you want to pay me, most likely there's a bank in between, which makes sure that you have the money to pay me and I can actually accept the money. So my account number is right, et cetera. I think there's that. And then, um, you know, if two banks are making a transaction, so I'm paying, let's say, some bank in, you know, in the U.S., there's a central bank at the top. There's the Fed that makes sure the two of us can transact. So, so you have these central institutions and DeFi has this fundamental concept of can you break those apart? Can you actually have a peer-to-peer -peer model where the software itself is what makes sure that people can transact, whether that's a simple transaction could be a lending transaction, could even be an FX transaction. So I think, just sorry to go into a bit background, I wanted to talk about that because in case someone didn't know what DeFi was, but that's the concept of DeFi. If you look at DeFi and, you know, again, I won't get technical, but let's say how much value is currently in the DeFi ecosystem. That went up from about a billion over two years to 100 billion. So that's a 100x multiple. Again, not big numbers compared to how much is happening in the equity markets, et cetera, but the speed of growth is high. Similarly, if you look at, for instance, you know, there's, there's this protocol called, um, you know, there's this platform called Uniswap. And Uniswap lets people almost participate in, the, in an FX market like a market maker. So you can go in, you have a bunch of X token and you have a bunch of Y token. You show up at the market then, and then you can say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to offer it at such and such exchange rate. And then someone can actually exchange their tokens using your pool. Right now, that activity is highly centralized. Only really big institutions are part of it. So in a weird way, it's democratization and it's distribution of these functions. If you look at what the actual underlying you know, mechanisms are, they're not, they're not like earth shattering. So you'd say, okay, if I look at this, maybe this is how we used to do FX like 20 years ago. But then you see someone going from a standing start to what the market looked like, let's say in the 90s even, or you know, around the turn of the century. And then you go, if it took them this long to go from a standing start to there, how long would it take them to go from you know, that point to where they can overtake us as a bank or as infrastructure? So I think in some ways, some of the space actually almost seems to be following Moore's law versus a linear growth. So you know, in Moore's law, like it's almost like it's an exponential growth versus a linear growth cycle. So I think that's why we're interested. So, so in my mind, that has been not not shocking but very surprising and almost like you know the dizzying extent of the growth rate is just something else as far as is it here to stay i think fundamentally the concept is here to stay is it going to stay in this exact form who knows i mean again um you know not to date myself but you know i was in college in the 90s and in the 90s there was this thing called napster napster was a peer-to-peer -peer song exchange platform and everyone who was in college was actually using Napster to listen to songs. Okay, so we, you know, get someone's song from someone. Everyone sort of knew it was, it was clunky. Not everyone could do it. And then it was, it smelled slightly illegal. Like it smelled like that. Then subsequently, U.S. courts actually decided it was illegal. But, um, but either ways, that was what happened then. And then 20 years later, you have Apple Music and Spotify. I don't think we would have gotten here without Napster. I think sometimes I wonder if where we are is that we are sitting in the Napster age. We just don't know what Spotify looks like. So I think it's here to stay. I just don't know in what shape or form. Oh, that's interesting. So that's a really great analogy. I like that. And I'm glad that you brought up the SEC. 
Really quick, uh, before we get to the regulation question, uh, I just want to remind the audience that to submit questions in the Q&A, uh, if you feel so inclined, and I'll try to get to, to them at the end of our conversation. But uh, Umar, yes, you mentioned the SEC, you mentioned how they put an end to the ICOs and this dizzying growth. What happens when or if the uh, regulators step in, either in general or in crypto or regarding the way in which banks are using blockchain technology? Are they going to put an end to that Napster-esque quality? I think I, I hope they don't put an end to innovation. So because I think there, there's we've as we've talked to regulators and they've talked to us, I think there's a very simple rule, which is at the end of the day, I actually think the purpose of regulators, as I understand it, and you know, also being an ex-lawyer, I can tell you, like, I think it's very, very important purpose they play in the economy, which is they actually protect the participants of the economy from being, you know, defrauded, cheated, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. Like they want to protect the economy and the participants. And I think that's a role here to play. So when they look at something, they have to look at, frankly, the activity, the risk that activity imparts, and then try to, you know, regulate it as such. So if two activities, let's say one uses blockchain and one doesn't use blockchain, if they introduce the same level and type of risk, they should be regulated the same. That doesn't mean the blockchain thing is worse. It just means that you need to have the same sort of protections. So I I hope we don't go, you know, the path of some, as you know, some major countries have just like, you know, literally just put a bullet in the whole thing and moved on. But I think uh, we, I hope we, we are a bit more open-minded. That being said, I do think, that the speed and the growth and frankly, the participation, um, you know, requires a hard look at some of these things. We are seeing that already. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, work being done now in stablecoin arena because, you know, because of the connectivity to how they could destabilize the ecosystem under certain, certain circumstances. But I think it's all, it's all well-founded and well-intentioned. Um, how quickly you can get to a new regulatory regime is anyone's guess, not just because of the fact that you know the regulators are just you know sort of getting up to speed, but the speed at which this thing is moving, you know, it's just very hard to catch up. So, so I I hope this regulation, I hope it's uh, on a same risk, same activity, same same regulation basis, and I hope that we protect innovation because I think this is uh, one of those things where we want the ecosystem to thrive and be more successful. Hmm. And then, so how do you define that as successful? Like, for example how or at what scale do you see regular investors really piling into this you know on a day-to-day -day basis so i think i mean i i think we are there now i mean from an investment point of view you look at coinbase i think coinbase in the us has more than uh, if i'm not mistaken 50 million customers or something that are interacting with coinbase uh, that's a that's a huge number of people like and then that's not even the biggest exchange in the world by the way so so when you look at that you go okay regular investors are obviously in there Again, I would say they are financially motivated versus philosophically motivated, I think. Uh, and so everyone wants to you know, get some of the upside in case Bitcoin or Ether or whatever does go up. But I think so the, in, the participation is there. Is the participation going to get more nuanced than saying, you know, I want to buy Bitcoin because Bitcoin might go up or Ether might go up? Um, that remains to be seen. I think that'll take some time. And I think that you would have to create some truly value add solutions for them to come in to, you know, try to use them. So I think that's a that's a longer burn. But as far as participation for the pure intent of investing is concerned, I think we are, you know, we are far along that curve already. Huh. 
Can you quantify that, do you think, or? No, I mean, I think it's uh, both, uh, you know, the trillions of dollars of market cap in core cryptos, uh, the fact that stable coins that are used to trade them have gone from, you know, what used to be a few billion, literally two years ago, to now 100 billion plus in circulation. You have uh, Coinbase with tens of millions of clients. It's kind of hard to guess that for everyone because in this space, it's a bit hard to fully understand that. But this thing is is very big now, at least from an investment point of view. And I think that's why it behooves you know regulators and others to take a hard look at this and say, are we making sure that everyone who's participating is aware of you know the risks as well, and are they doing it with their eyes wide open? Hmm. Umar, I would love to go to some of the audience questions. Sure. Uh, there's one from Takahito. It's kind of what I asked before, but I, but it's in a different way. How is Onyx unit responding to investors' needs? And it would be appreciated if Mr. Fruit could give me some examples. So I think, first of all, Onyx is not an investment arm. So it's, uh, it's not so much investors are coming to us and saying, I want to invest in Bitcoin, help me do it. Onyx is much more of a technology and product arm. So this is where an e-commerce company comes to us and says, I am operating across the globe. I have money in Hong Kong and Singapore and London and New York. And by the way, I have built a blockchain that tracks my supply chain across the world. I want to link that blockchain with your money blockchain so the two can operate in sync. And then we would say, okay, we can do that. The two blockchains are now synced up. And now both our client and we are operating on a distributed ledger framework. They might have theirs, we have ours, but I think it's those sorts of problems. Or we have some clients who would come to us and say, I want to do X, Y, Z, and I need uh, to get smarter. So, you know, this concept of smart money saying if X or Y or Z happens, I want you to do, you know, this, this thing, some transaction, some movement, some foreign exchange. So I think those are the sorts of problems we are solving. I think as far as the investors coming in, that is not for our business unit. That obviously is in our wealth management type areas that we work with closely. Um, but ultimately, they would take those inbounds. But most of those inbounds are more along the lines of people wanting exposure to the financial ups and downs of Bitcoin. It's not even, in many cases, it's not even so much people want to own Bitcoin. They want to replicate the performance of it. Exactly. And I think, I think we've seen a boom in a lot of uh, crypto-related products that are kind of derivatives of, of Bitcoin itself because of the custodial issues, etc., Will you talk to me a little bit about JPM coin? So I think JPM coin, we set it up using crypto technology. So some of the underlying rails, but actually legally and sort of how it works is like a deposit. So if you really think, I mean, I'll, I'll super simplify it. I mean, how, what is a deposit system? A deposit system is just a gigantic Excel spreadsheet. You know, people used to do it with hands. With by hand, like 200 years ago or whatever. And now we have a giant Excel spreadsheet that says Trista has $10 and Umar has five. And if you give me $5, then the Excel spreadsheet gets updated. So we have taken that ledger of transactions and put it on a blockchain. And that's how JPM coin operates. The advantages of that are frankly, unlike cutoff, unlike our core technology or even central banks with this cutoffs and, you know, sort of uh, windows where transactions can't happen. This is a 24 hour 24 by 7 live technology can be enabled with smart contracts, can connect to other blockchains, et cetera. But at a very fundamental, almost like legal level, it's almost like having a deposit in JP Morgan, essentially, just on a completely different technological platform. Okay, thanks. And there's a question from Jerome. Do you think traditional markets such as equities or FIC 
will move towards decentralized exchanges such as Uniswap? I think it's a very, very long cycle to get there. If you look at the markets arena, and we've looked at very things, and again, I'm not a markets expert, but equities are extremely efficient. Like how it moves, the cost of this thing, et cetera, is extremely efficient. When you look at the current infrastructure, you know, if something is costing you, I don't know, 10 cents, it's probably too expensive. And right now, uh, and I think it'll change, but right now in some of our some of these ecosystems, the transaction could cost you $50. So I think it's a long cycle before the switch over. I think the other thing people have to realize is that things sometimes need to slow down so you can sue someone if something goes wrong. So I think, you know, in a fully automated system, that may not be possible. So some of these transactions have multiple checkpoints because you need to be able to stop them or to reverse them or to have a dispute resolution mechanism. And so automating everything and having, having it happen instantly may not be the solution. Also, I mean, I, I looked at FIC, um, for people who don't know, that's fixed income currencies and commodities markets. Some of these are incredibly opaque and and it's 2022 and, uh, you know, in metals, especially if they're still talk, they're still handing over pieces of paper to each other. <laughs> I think, I mean, that, if you look at trade finance, it has very similar vibe to it. But part of that is you can put certain things on a blockchain. You can put information. You can even put tokenized money on a blockchain. But you can't put a ship on a blockchain. Like yeah. ship, okay, I mean, it's going to have a bunch of stuff. It's going to float around. It's going to show up in port. Someone has to make sure that if the ship was full of, say, I don't know, it's an oil tanker. Someone has to make sure that there's oil in the tanker. You can you can digitize it. You can you know tokenize it all you want. I think that's where, unfortunately, at some point, you have to interact with the physical world. So uh, you know, for now at least, until we all move to the metaverse or the matrix, I think that's going to be a limitation. Uh, there's another question here, and uh, what I guess this is interesting. It's one's from David, and one's from Keith. Are regulators in Europe behind the curve, and what would regulation look like? I don't think they're behind the curve. I mean, I'm you know, I, I wouldn't call out any single regulators behind the curve. I do think that all regulators are challenged with the, as I said, the speed of innovation and the speed of movement, and they're trying to catch up to the best of their ability, but. From my point of view, regulation, again, if it focuses on the core, you know, core construct of what you are trying to achieve. I mean, a lot of regulation is for investor protection. There's things like, you know, sort of, you know, you know, a lot of criminal law enforcement happens through money monitoring or like if you think about the Bank Secrecy Act, AML Act, all of those things. I think those things will come to this ecosystem. And I think I, I always joke with people. It's hard to avoid taxation. And, and if you think the law enforcement people are just going to like look the other way and let you do whatever, it's just never going to happen. So I think those things will catch up for sure. How people regulate these platforms or these assets remains to be seen. Uh, again, I hope it's uh, based on the same activity, same risk, same regulation principle. And I hope it's to some extent globally you know, sort of aligned. Because right now, given the, the nature of these markets, especially, is global. So you can trade the Bitcoin in Hong Kong or in London or New York and it can move around all over the place. Having different regulatory regimes is going to be complicated. This is not like typical equity markets. Hmm. And one from Peter. Are all things crypto really a threat to legacy financial institutions? You talked about aiming to disrupt your own company that you work for. I, I'm, I'm really curious for you to expand on that. As an investment as an investment asset, not really. Because, I mean, if you think about crypto, I mean, a lot of people 
equated to digital gold. I actually think it's operating somewhat similar, maybe more volatile, but like similar to a you know high value commodity. Um, I think it's just like one more commodity or currency. So I mean, as you mentioned, the FIC business, this is just part of FIC. So if we really wanted to get into it, we can get into it. I think other the underlying tech itself. The question is going to be which banks are going to be willing to embrace and actually know how to embrace it well. And the ones who do that will both reduce their operational expense, but more importantly, create much better product sets for their clients and capabilities for their clients and platforms. And there's going to be other banks who will slow down. I really don't think it's going to like destroy financial institutions, but just like every other tech, it might create some people who'd be ahead of others and there'd be some winners and some losers. What piqued my interest before in an earlier conversation we had offline was how you were talking about legacy institutions and you know emerging markets where they might not have banking systems and how this kind of easier to, to implement these technologies in places where they don't have you know these legacy financial institutions as Peter was asking. Yeah, so I think if you think let's let's come to central bank digital currencies. We didn't talk about them, but this is a concept of a central bank actually issuing you know real money as in real like fiat money on a distributed ledger of some sort or some technology. If you think about the US, you think about the UK, you think about Europe, I mean, China, et cetera. I mean, China is doing it already, but some of these geographies, a high proportion of people are banked, et cetera. Yes, there could be some upside from a tech like this, but I'm not sure the upside is going to be dramatic out of the gate. However, there's countries where either the central bank is, you know, weaker or frankly the banking infrastructure is not there and most of the people are off the grid or at least the financial grid and i think these could be ways to put them on the financial grid but then the financial institutions that are present are already so weak that i'm not sure that it's they're not very far from being you know in, in trouble anyway so it puts them on the grid because i do at least fundamentally believe that the more human beings that can transact in a digital way across the world the better off we would be uh, you know as a global population we want people to be able to you know, do something in Africa and get paid out of whatever country they want to get paid out of. So I think both regular financial institutions, banks, as well as, you know, disruptors are going to be aiming for that market. I think a lot of the use cases that we are working with right now are frankly either in the, you know, not in the markets area, but like sort of in the trading area. So how can you actually track information better, uh, digitized securities, et cetera. We have a platform called uh, Intraday Repo where you can do certain trades on an intraday basis, which is within the day, which usually could not be done in less than over overnight. So, so I think it's those sorts of companies are interested. Supply chain is a big one. Frankly, I think uh, cross-border money movement for a lot of clients is much more interesting. So those are the sort of examples where clients are heavily involved um, versus, you know, some of the other, I think, uh, equities type clearing. I mean, those sorts of things are, I think, still very nascent. So. So, I mean, I think um, people take different points of view on Web3. Again, I, I am a believer that it is it is going to come. 
but I also think that mm. the current infrastructure and the user experience yeah. is you know, hearing things like to, you know, for, for DeFi and technically kind of very sucky, so to speak. And, uh, uh, and a, and a regular person, it's very hard for them to interact with it. Yes, I mean, the enthusiasts can get on and they can figure out what to do on a Web3, etc. I think the concept in Web3, to just simplify for everyone, is just like Web2 is centralized, Web3 could be very decentralized and we can move uh, value along with other information on Web3 in a point-to-point basis. So, you know, obviously you can see how that's started with the concept of blockchain and you know you know uh, starting bitcoin and ethereum but my view is it's to come the whether it's going to take us two years or five years or ten years is a bit hard to you know hard to kind of guess it depends on how quickly the user interface and user interactivity gets up to speed and if the use cases inside web3 are actually interesting enough to go beyond investment or speculation or just like you know you know, something, someone who just wants to be cool uh, as, as a technologist. So I think we need to go beyond that. As far as the metaverse is concerned, I mean, I, I think I'm not qualified, but I can tell you it's uh, fascinating to me as, uh, you know, an uh, ex-computer scientist from way, way, way back. Um, you know, but, you know, I, I see our kids playing, you know, all sorts of metaverses in, in all of them, like Minecraft and Roblox and whatever. So there are metaverses there already. I think the question is how far and how quickly we're going to go. So. Okay, one more piece of jargon, CBDC. What is that? Uh, so, and, <laughs> but actually, there was a question from Simon. He said, are you considering how Onyx will be compatible with CBDCs? Yeah, I think central bank digital currencies are the concept of if the U.S. US issues, most dollars are digital anyway. But if the central bank was to issue a digital dollar that would operate kind of like cash, but in a digital way. So, I mean, you know, if you think cash, I can, Chris, I can hand you a $20 bill and you know that it's it's all good because you can see it, you know, it's signed by the, you know, it's got, you know, it's got sick treasury on it, whatever. So, you know, it's the US government is behind it. CBDC is a digital version of the same thing that could be issued. And the thought process is that people who are not banked right now, maybe they would come into banking. People would have more like, you know, you take cash out of circulation. They'd be more digitized economy, et cetera. That's a, at least... I'm talking about like a very high level business case uh, for CBDC that's been pursued. Um, as far as Onyx is concerned, everything we are building, our core infrastructure is built with one eye on these sorts of assets. So the reason mm-hmm. for JPM coin on in Ethereum derivative technology is if tomorrow certain of these coins, whether they are CBDCs or even, you know, private stable coins end up becoming much bigger then our technology is actually quite interoperable with it. Hmm. I'm going, to, I'm going to just ask you one last question. Actually, Neil and Edgar both asked somewhat similar questions. So if enforcement comes to crypto, why would you even need to use it? Because wouldn't that be just like fiat money? And then would, would Fed coin, the introduction of a Fed coin, uh, change cryptocurrency? So I think the first one is a bit of a strange question. I mean, again, I can't not think in a twisted way about the question, read it wrong, but I think regulation coming doesn't mean, I mean, unless you're using it only for like, you know, nefarious purposes, I think you can't say like, just because someone's going to come to it, you're just going to stop using it because the government is looking at it. Um, Because I do think at least the major cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether and some of the others have made a long, have come a long way from where they were like, you know, there was lots and lots of bad activities happening. You have companies like, you know, big companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic who can, you know, who do tracking services and make sure that, 
bitcoins or ether you know tokens or others have not been in wallets that had any kind of you know sort of um, negativity associated with them or hadn't been you know flagged in any way and newer companies like drm labs are doing similar things in even more innovative ways so i think we've come a long way and Frankly, I think there's still illegal activity, probably now pushed more into, you know, again, I won't go into definition, but like privacy coins, which are really hard to track. So, you know, but ultimately it's just a matter of standards. So it's not so much that you can or cannot track it. The issue is that we don't know what the exact standard is. Like, what is the government comfortable with? I mean, if you think about it, I think there's tens of trillions of hundred dollar bills floating around. I can, I mean, it's likely that some of them are not being used for good purposes either. So, you know, so I think that that stuff, I think, uh, in my mind, is I, I don't think regulation or oversight is a reason for crypto to become smaller or bigger. I think it might even become bigger as people accept it. Um, on the second one, CBDCs, if CBDCs come in, I do think they're a good payment mechanism. I think no one would argue, at least today, I don't think you can argue that Bitcoin is a payment mechanism. Maybe on the edges, but in reality, it's primarily an investment vehicle, not a payment vehicle. If you had CBDC and you knew the US government was behind it, then you could use it in a decentralized way to make payments. So I, I do think, again, the things could coexist depending upon how some of the current cryptocurrencies mature. Umar, is there anything I didn't ask or our, our listeners didn't ask that you'd like to add? We were going to wrap it up really soon, and I'm really glad that you brought up the, uh, the stigma that is in this this area and the criminals because uh, I just wanted to prep our listeners for our next episode tomorrow, which is actually called the darker side of money this year and fraud. <laughs> so I, I don't think there's anything not asked. I mean, I, I would say someone who uh, I respect a lot, a very smart person, like, you know, recommended this book to me called, uh, you know, uh, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It was written about, I think, 170 years ago about a lot of bubbles. And I think it's a bit of a slog to read, but I would say people who want to read about how bubbles happen should read that. I'm not saying crypto is not a bubble, but I think everyone would agree that having 9,000 of cryptocurrencies floating around is not a tenable outcome. So I would want people to like just think about it, um, you know, what will survive and what will not survive and how there are echoes of the past that come through here. Great, Umar, I appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. And we hope you listen to the next episode tomorrow. As I mentioned, it's called The Darker Side of Money. And this year in fraud and the Market Watch reporters take a look at the new developments and themes in financial crime that can be expected this year. And they also look at some of the most common trends in fraud over the past year and what steps law enforcement, regulators, and financial institutions have taken to combat them. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a good day. Thanks, Imar. Thank you, Tristan. Bye-bye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.